Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. Our guest for this episode is Bruce Russell, who joined us from his home in New Zealand for a hugely enjoyable conversation. Bruce has a remarkable story to tell, Ben. Uh, he really does, mate. I think um, uh, I'm going to start on a slightly tangential note here instead of finishing on one start on one but um in preparation for this conversation today I was thinking about we watched the this film the big short last night about the sort of banking crisis in the early 2000s um which was you know focused on how things are so heavily weighted in favor of kind of minor elites and um it kind of it just made me afterwards listening to Bruce's conversation I saw the sort of some of the parallels with that in that Bruce has a, you know, a real unique worldview kind of framework and take on things. He, he wonderfully described his model for running a label in terms of being an, an international revolutionary socialist party. And, and kind of, we've been very fortunate on some of these conversations that we've had with a number of people like, you know, Joe Thompson, Stuart Braithwaite, and, and following on that Bruce Russell, about people who have described you could describe them as a kind of model for how you would want to conduct yourself as both, you know, both in a band and as a musician and, and running labels. And um, and Bruce's spectacular story that brings that to life in a fantastic and erudite and humorous fashion was so intriguing, wasn't it? It was. So much of Bruce's story speaks to just what is possible if you are passionate and driven to do things in your own way. Yeah, yeah, Every, everything, everything that kind of he had to say, whether that was talking about um, the, you know, working, coming from Dunedin, Dunedin in the kind of the sort of flying nun scene and being involved in that and then forming his own label from that or the formation of the Dead Sea and the kind of the sort of reflections on how that came together. You know, the sort of first story about the first musical meeting. Um, and sometimes when, when we're doing these podcasts, we're sort of thinking of the kind of tagline that might spring out. And for me, it was very much like he, he talked about the Dead Sea and he said, it was a sunny afternoon and we were listening to Trout Mask Replica and having a couple of beers. And I was like, well, of course you were. Well, what, how, would, yeah. how, else, how else would the Dead Sea start that other than <laughs> something like that? And it was, yeah, what, what a, a unique world for you, you would describe it as, wouldn't you? You would. And well, as, often been, as so often has been the case on the podcast, we found ourselves speaking to someone for whom a, a scene or a community has played, well, no small part in their, their creative journey. Yeah, and, that, and the scene that he describes um, in, the, in New Zealand that evolved around Flying Nun in a, in a tiny city and uh, the sort of power and, and strength of that, the, you know, the sort of the, the sort of cities as a vortex for music, how people were drawn into that community and how something there is something about that. Isn't it? Of course, we, we have, you know, parallels in this country around Manchester or Liverpool or, you know, various, various scenes and that. Um, but, yeah, that there's something very special about the way he described that, how the flying nun scene evolved and the inspiration that he took from that and the involvement that he and the energy that he fed into it himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And tracking it back to very sort of spe uh, specific moments as well, which is, is something that we've, we've touched on before as well. Something else that really jumped out for me was Bruce's passion and love for what he does remaining almost completely undiminished. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It kind of, <laughs> I think we were just chatting briefly beforehand about how he had, 
Bruce had an idea about how things might pan out. And uh, to his satisfaction, they did turn out to be exactly as he thought they might be. But along the way, there was all sorts of kind of opportunities and journeys. And again, someone that is um, very much one of the, the positives that he had pulled from his journey had been the connections that he'd made with like-minded individuals globally and at a time when the internet wasn't in its kind of fluid form that it is now nowadays so those connections were much you know made over longer time um yeah but yeah like you say his positivity remains undiminished there's a lot of there's clearly a lot of things that bruce has yet to achieve and no doubt will achieve yeah no doubt uh, well thanks to bruce for coming on to the show and for for speaking with us it, it was a really affecting conversation and 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 um one that we've talked about quite a lot since since we had it bruce was a, is a fantastic guest and, and a, a uniquely inspiring man and so our, our, our gratitude to him for for being a guest on songs from a padded envelope um with uh, 30 episodes in now which is amazing and it's been such a brilliant thing to do um and we've got some amazing interviews in the can as they say ready to go um so if you're enjoying the the podcast please do head over to apple hq and leave us a review and uh thanks to everybody who has listened to the show so far and helped us to spread the word um we love doing it do we not we do indeed and 30 episodes is uh yeah it's a nice marker in the sand isn't it it is yeah it is and so yeah well let's go over to it let's go over to episode 30 of songs from a padded envelope with bruce russell yeah my name is bruce russell i uh, i'm from new zealand um for uh, three decades i've been a um, guitarist in a band called the dead sea um i also engage in a lot of other kind of collaborative work i'm a <clears throat> i'm an improviser basically um, and I, I, I kind of think of myself as a sound artist, probably more than a musician. I'm, I'm a spectacularly incompetent musician, so um, sound artist seems like a more honest description of what I can do. Um, the track that uh, I've chosen for this um, podcast is uh, quite a recent recording. Um, in February of 2020, a friend of mine from France, a, a fellow called Thierry Monnier, who records under the name of Sunstabbed, um, was on a visit to New Zealand. He's uh, He's been here a few times. He's a big New Zealand fan, really likes the country, uh, very interested in our history and culture. So he uh, he was out here and we had a wee session in, uh, in my studio here at home. Um, and I guess the reason I chose it for this podcast is because it represents, if you like, a, 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 an era before where we are now, because literally two weeks after he was here, he was scuttling out of the country on one of the sort of last flights before the first lockdown happened. Um, and so our collaboration in real time in, you know, face to face in New Zealand uh, seems like a, um, a good thing to celebrate, if you like, because since then I haven't been doing a lot of that stuff. Um, I can do whatever I want with, you know, New Zealanders, um, you know, and, and we're gigging and doing all sorts here, but it's very, it's kind of weird because it's only in New Zealand and nobody's coming here. Um, and so there's, there's an opportunity, I guess, for New Zealand artists 
um, to occupy that space in the marketplace that would have been previously full of Americans and you know Brits and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's just been such a weird year, and I think that the the track I've chosen uh, should kind of give both the flavour of what I do and also perhaps an opportunity to reflect on where where we are now. <clears throat> Well, th um, thanks so much for making some time to come onto the podcast, Bruce. We've got a bunch of questions lined up, but uh, just wanted to start by asking you to tell us about your journey to uh, making music and what made you first want to pick up a guitar. Yep, that's a good question. Um, I was in Dunedin, uh, which is a university town, a couple of hundred kilometres south of where I am now, um, in the early 80s. And... Basically, there was an explosion of um, garage bands in that small town. There's 120,000 odd people. Um, and it turned into a, a, a really vibrant um, underground scene, if you like, for probably most of the 80s. Um, suddenly, Dunedin, which was a sort of a backwater town it had been during the gold rush year in the 19th century it was new zealand's kind of biggest and most kind of go-ahead city and had subsequently flipped to being completely moribund um when i was there but uh we had this weird kind of um outburst of creativity in the in the sort of post-punk garage band area and i just got caught up in that became really um obsessed um with i was interested in rock music but I just found myself kind of at the vortex of this thing that went on and kind of centered around the Flying Nun record label for whom I subsequently worked. Um, so I, I just got dragged into it. Initially, I was writing for fanzines, going to a lot of gigs, you know, hobnobbing with, uh, with people um, in, you know, who, were, who were doing stuff. And so picking up a guitar competence wasn't really a, a huge requirement everybody was kind of working it out as they went along it was one of those really uniquely productive kind of scenes and because it was so far from even what passes for the center of media and and you know the the music industry in new zealand which is in auckland which is at the other end of the country but um there was absolutely no commercial pressures of any description um for a long time you know for easily for the first decade and um and because there were no options to, you know, kind of sell out and make money, people people weren't doing that. They were just doing whatever they wanted. And that was a really, you know, exciting time. Did the scene evolve really quickly, Bruce? Did you kind of, what, at what point did you recognise that something was starting to build around you? Um, I Well, in November 1981, uh, a couple of days after my, 21st birthday i went to um a bar called the empire tavern which is a tiny tiny bar where a lot of the stuff was going on and i saw a band called the clean who i'd seen a couple of times earlier in the year um and had been you know sort of kind of vaguely nonplussed by them um but they'd really come along in leaps and strides during 1981 and had been touring the country you know um quite extensively and really were kind of uh match fit if you like by the end of 1981 and they they'd made a couple of records for flying nun they'd already recorded uh their breakthrough ep boodle 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 um and 
I had this epiphany. I was in this bar with about, I don't know, you know, a hundred other kind of um, mad fans. And I suddenly realized with this moment of clarity that this was the best band in the world, not just the best band in my town, not just the best band in New Zealand, but at that point, I was at ground zero on something that was, and I don't know how I knew this, but everything that's happened since November 1981 has convinced me that I was completely correct and that I was magically at the absolute epicenter of something incredibly epic at that point. And so after that, um, things just took off. Uh, the Flying Nun label had some hiccups, but kind of managed to you know soldier on through the entire decade, putting out a, an awful lot of what turned out to be kind of classic underground post-punk records, heaps of bands, mainly from the South Island, but also some from the North Island. Because, you know, New Zealand is a country of, of two countries. There's North and there's South. Um, the English are kind of familiar with this. You you do it in one island, we've got two. Um, and, of course, for North, you can read South. You know, it's because uh, we're in the Southern Hemisphere. So the, the South of New Zealand is like the North of the United Kingdom, I guess. So if you can imagine Edinburgh, Glasgow and, and Manchester all rolled into one, but, you know, only the size of, I don't know, Cheltenham or something. Um, <laughs> how many people live in Cheltenham? Anyone know? <laughs> um, anyway, 125,000 people with a university. Um, so, you know, we had all the makings of a classic kind of um, of a scene, if you like. But, yeah, the, the, the uh, things did develop really quickly and by the end of the 90s the opportunities were presenting themselves for commercial success and with all the pressures that come with that and I guess I was one of the people who sort of by that point refused to um you know I wasn't I knew what that meant and I wasn't interested in that and so I was <coughs> I found myself in the position of starting my own independent record label in 1988 expressway and we were the guys who weren't going to pursue the shiny pop dream if you like do you think that 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 shiny pop dream um destroyed flying nun as a label then did it did completely detract from what they'd done previously what what kind of happened yeah i think it fucked everything up really um they I mean, they were in a bind in 1987 when I was working in their office in Christchurch as the kind of office intern, gopher, butler, you know, phone answerer guy. Um, the, when I say butler, I did actually, I had to cock. <laughs> anyway. Um, did you have to butler? Yeah, there was a bit of butling went on. Um, <laughs> they gave me the job because they knew I could get out of bed in the morning and that and I was the only guy working for the label who was capable of doing that. So, you know, it's kind of the morning shift, if you like, in the office. Um, but uh, the, the, sorry, I'm losing track of the question. The question was around um, the, the, the pressures of commerciality. Yeah, I think the, the problem was that in 1987, they, they, had, a, a, they had about 100 titles in print, let's say, <clears throat> And they'd all been pressed in New Zealand. And then EMI closed the only New Zealand pressing plant still functioning at that point. And they did it. They'd kind of announced they were going to do it in two years. And then they suddenly snapped their fingers and said, no, six weeks, we're done. 
Um, so that left the flying nun label in a very difficult position where it's like they didn't have any way to continue to manufacture and the only way they could really get access to manufacturing in Australia at that point was to do a deal with a major label um, and initially they went with Warners um, and of course to do that they had to at least pretend that they were going to produce things that would sell you know, Warners, I don't think, were particularly interested in, you know, having a whole roster of, um, you know, critically acclaimed artists who, who would all successfully sell a pressing of 300 records. Um, that that wasn't what they were interested in. So there was a lot of pressure. And I, that was their call. They made it. They offered me the chance to go to Auckland where they were moving. Uh, I said, no, thank you and went back to Dunedin um, because I could kind of see that the stuff I was interested in was not going to thrive in this new environment. So I um, started Expressway uh, effectively as a way to gather together the artists I was interested in working with. And that, at that point, that included myself because I was in the Dead Sea by that point and we had <coughs> put out our first record on Flying Nun <coughs> around about the time they moved to Auckland, it came out. Um, you know, and the fact that I'd been in their office on a daily basis through the second half of uh, 87 certainly helped get that record out because it did focus their minds on <laughs> this, this that guy who keeps coming in every morning, keeps banging on about his bloody record. And there was tension because I was, you know, I was disappointed because they had been you know, the centre of something that I regarded as, you know, globally kind of exemplary at that stage. And, and I had, in 86, I was in London. So I, you know, I, I wasn't, it wasn't just the view from where I was. I'd also been to London and I'd thoroughly examined the UK music scene in 1986, you know, and it didn't appeal to me. Um, I only found a couple of bands who I even regarded as tolerable, um, you know, there were international acts who I saw who, you know, was, was really amazing. And it, that was very exciting. And of course, there was record stores and, you know, all that kind of hoopla. But, you know, in terms of sheer uh, creativity in the, in the, in the kind of post-punk garage band area, you know, New Zealand was just passing over the UK, um, you know, nothing personal intended by that you know i'm not sorry about that not a very nice <laughs> no no t t i take your point I, I just i'm interested in um that just going back a little bit to that that uh the the birth of that scene or or when that scene sparked into life around the, the gig that you were at the, the clean gig you were at and how that kind of that moment kind of resonated through the scene in Dunedin and the bands that you were playing with. Cause I would imagine that if there's that kind of energy, which you're still kind of feeling in the way that you yeah. describe it, how that, how that, how that tracks out into the bands that are around and at that show and are around that show, how, how that manifests in the, in the community and the sort of creativity well, it was, of it the people. It in, was a, again, that's an interesting question. And I've spent a lot of time, subsequently kind of reflecting on what trying to what studying if you like what makes us seen because it's a repeated story it's happened in lots of different places and lots of different times and various ways shapes and forms but there are a whole lot of things that are required for a scene to work and 
the the scene in Dunedin started because there was a band called The Enemy, who, uh, which was led by a fellow called Chris Knox, um, who subsequently uh, they turned into Toy Love and then the Tall Dwarfs, and and Chris became an integral part of the Flying Nun sort of enterprise, if you like. Um, <clears throat> so. They'd been around in Dunedin 78, 79, and it really kick-started, you know, they'd inspired a whole bunch of kind of underage kids to start bands. So by 1981, there were half a dozen bands of, you know, like eight kids younger than me. I was 21, so most of them were three or four years younger than me. They were just old enough to play in bars. Um, And... So that was the first generation. That was what classically was referred to as the Dunedin sound. Um, and Flying Nun in 82 did a double EP with the Chills, the Valains, the Stones, and Sneaky Feelings. And that was sort of regarded as the, the template, if you like, for this Dunedin sound, jangly, post-Velvet Underground, 60s-inspired, blah, 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 and guitar bands. Um, but then what happened was people like i i'd already accidentally wound up there i'd moved from nelson which was at the other end of the south island uh, in 79 not knowing what was going to happen you know I, I i went there to get away from everyone i'd ever been at school with because they were all going to university of canterbury and christchurch and i thought i never want to see any of those bastards again so i went to um otago and kind of you know just got on with my life but then i discovered this this unthought of thing happened and what immediately happened was that people began to then move to Dunedin because it was happening um and so Michael Morley who uh, I play with in the Dead Sea he arrived uh, his first year at university was 1982 and he went there because the music was happening he was from a a provincial town in the North Island um, Napier uh, in the Hawke's Bay, um, and he just, he was music mad and really wanted to be where the action was, and so he went there. And then a little bit later on, in the mid to late 80s, bands, entire groups began to relocate from Auckland to Dunedin because there were more opportunities to play in Dunedin, the rents were cheaper, um, booze was cheaper, you know, you could live on no money in a way that was challenging in a big city but easy in a small town um and so the whole thing just continued to kind of boil you know um all through the 80s and uh, you know up to the point where the the whole um expressway thing kind of took off because flying none have if you like had kind of uh, departed the territory you know they'd left the field of play to an extent moved to auckland um and after that it was kind of game on and things got we got pretty busy <laughs> tell, tell us a bit about that tell us a bit about expressway about how that how that did how that did take off in bruce well i because i'd had the six months in the flying nun office and i did two two key things when i was there i i i'm a natural kind of uh i like to classify things i like to bring i've got a, an aspergery side to me and they had this massive pile of fanzines from all over the world people have been sending them magazines for you know three or four years at the point when i got near the office and there was there was shelves stacked <coughs> completely random piles of these magazines 
one of the first things I did is go through them, work out what they had, where they were coming from. You know, I read lots of them, worked out that there was starting to be huge amounts of interest in because you know this was pre-internet you if you were in new zealand you knew what was happening in new zealand through word of mouth and and our rudimentary um media but you didn't know what was happening in other countries and i rapidly discovered through um sorting out their fanzine collection and also answering about two or three years of of fan mail that was backlogged because these guys just basically couldn't be asked answering mail they were, and they were, you know the story of flying nun is one of shambolic disorganization so uh, for six months or so they had this they had me being you know tediously well organized and kind of going to work in the morning and answering all these fucking letters so what i took from that was i realized very quickly that it was possible to network internationally at the flying nun in the completely invisible level you didn't have to climb the pop chart ladder in New Zealand in order to get outside of the country. And that had always been the assumption that you needed to have a top pop group and then you might get to go to Australia. And then if everything goes well, you know, London could be next. And, and then actually the irony is that's what the enemy slash toy love had. That's what they tried to do. And they had got to Australia and they had basically died there. And they never got to London. Um, and so we had that example in front of us. And so it seemed to me, you know, four or five years later when I, you know, I, I, I knew enough to realize, okay, there is another way we can now do this. It's really possible. It's possible now. It has, we have to do this. So the whole thing with Expressway was about, there wasn't about making I mean, it sounds very tedious. It wasn't about making money. I never imagined that I was building a successful capitalist enterprise. Um, what I wanted to do was to have a cool indie label that released enough things, particularly seven inches, because I kind of realized that seven inches were the sweet spot in terms of media attention and 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 portability and also and, and affordability so my aim was to do a series of limited edition seven inches with really great bands from mainly Dunedin and Christchurch and use those to establish connections for those artists so they could get onto independent labels in the markets because New Zealand isn't wasn't the market you know the Dead Sea we're, we're, we were we were stuck on you know 50 fans in New Zealand but we were very confident that if we could if we could position ourselves into the American market that we could find what we needed find our or our audience and 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 I was right about that too coincidentally so um that was the plan was basically to create this thing that was a, I called it a lifeboat um so there was limited seating and nobody, nobody, except Captain Bly, plans to cross the Pacific in a lifeboat. Okay, we, that was never the plan. It was to get out of the lifeboat as quickly as possible, um, metaphorically speaking, and you know, and kind of go on with what we really wanted to do. And so that was what we did. <clears throat> was there ever a, the lure of wanting to upgrade your lifeboat to a bigger lifeboat through the sort of? Um, your initial success of realizing your plan. No, I was, I was really, I was really determined that I didn't want to make my 
life's work running an independent record label um so so the plan was always that it was a it was a I, I mean i didn't know it was going to be a five-year plan but it turned out it was a it was essentially a five-year plan and i worked so hard i mean i was obsessed i was obsessed with about three things i was obsessed with listening to records getting out of it and uh oh, four things um I had a, um, a, a 1962 Riley 472 car. I was really obsessed with that and took a lot of work keeping that running. Um, and and the, the other thing I was obsessed with was, was basically Expressway. It was making that work. And so I had a job. I was working, you know, nine to five, plus I was running this label and doing and and also obviously maintaining the whole a and r end of things going to a lot of gigs smoke a lot of pot um and so it 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 wasn't a sustainable lifestyle and i and the thing was that because i started it when i was 27 so i already knew kind of you know i, I was worldly enough to know a few things about how it was likely to go and and you know, I'd seen Flying Nun. I had that example in front of me. I wasn't making the stuff up. I knew what I didn't want to do. So basically everything that they were doing, <clears throat> I didn't do. Uh, what was your experience like of managing the expectations of the bands that were coming to you with their demos? I was incredibly clear what I could and couldn't do for them and what they should do if they wanted something else. It was like, well, you know, and and lots of there was there was a period there in the late eighties where essentially bands like the Three Ds, who became quite a, a successful um, flying nun band in the early nineties, they could have gone either way. Um, I certainly worked with them initially and put them on a couple of compilations, and um, and in the end they went the flying nun route. Um, and and there was you know I thought they were stupid, but it wasn't my choice it was their choice so it um yeah I, I just tried to be really clear what i couldn't couldn't do for people and and i was also really clear that i could only work with so many people because it was it was it was a it was very labor intensive because again no internet i was writing letters i was managing a worldwide correspondence it was like running a you know a revolutionary socialist um, international party effectively that was the model actually i was like you know so, you know we you know, fanzines were important because i knew that in 1905 lenin had decided that the the key thing to build the international um socialist democratic party in russia was to have a newspaper what is to be done 1905 famous pamphlet what is to be done is to have a paper so you know we had so here's me <laughs> vladimir Ilyich russell um <laughs> we, we organized um you know we had fanzines we made sure that we had an outlet that we could use to publicize what we were doing because fanzines traveled i knew this i'd seen it before um and and I, but I was very concerned that I not overstretch myself, you know, and also quality control was essential it, to work. It had to all be amazing. You know, it had to be like people had to know if it was on expressway, they had to have it. Otherwise, it wasn't going to work. So yeah, it was very, it was very Leninist. It was very tight. Bruce, those those connections that you put down with Expressway, those the, the sort of roots that you made there, have they stayed with you throughout the you know throughout your career beyond and that? Absolutely, and that's one of the you know one of the great pleasures of my life. And during lockdown, I had a lot of time to reflect on 
the fact that the people I was communicating with were people that I met through actually largely through Expressway and, and some a bit later on. Um, but yeah, I'm still working on a, on a re really quite regular basis with people who I made contact with then. Um, you know, the likes of Tom Lax, who ran Silk Breeze Records, runs Silk Breeze Records, I should say. Um, you know, he and I are still in, in pretty frequent communication. In fact, we had quite a long correspondence during lockdown, um, mainly about um, uh, making kimchi, um, Korean pickled cabbage. Um, because, you know, you take up a hobby, you can't do it. <laughs> make kimchi. Um, so, yeah, and so people like that absolutely are still really, um, you know, significant players. Um, uh, subsequently, you know, Lasse Mahaug, uh, Norwegian noise artist, I worked with him really closely. Um, he was a little bit later on. He kind of, we, we connected over the whole Corpus Semeticum thing. Um, Corpus Hermeticum was what I did after Expressway, and I never intended to stop one label and then start another one. But um, but the problem was that, <laughs> and this this is where I sound really mercenary. Um, in the early nineties, I it became it became apparent to me that there was a gold rush to be had with compact discs. That compact discs the the point of them, because I, I couldn't initially work out what's the point of this. But then when I looked into it, I realized the point of it was that they they just made so much money. You know, they were so cheap to make and the price of them was so artificially high that you could make them cheaply, sell them more cheaply than the major labels and still look like kind of a good guy. And still, I think my peak year, 1995, I made, I made 40,000 New Zealand dollars, which was enough for the family to live on um, for the year out of one CD, Thurston Moore and Tom Seagal, Clang Farben Melody, uh, sold about four and a half thousand of those things and, and made $10 on each one. It was insane. So that's but but also the, the the other part of that was that by then my interests I I kind of realised look I'm I'm not under underground pop music is not where I'm at um, I was interested in uh, sound and noise and experimental stuff in you know I'd become you know kind of sucked into the whole free jazz vortex um, that was going on at the time and. So Corpus Hermeticum was a way for me to promote stuff that was completely in line with my personal interests and what and was international. It wasn't, you know, I mean, some of it was from New Zealand, but lots of it wasn't. Um, and and it and it was unlike Expressway. It was a it was a legitimate business. I paid tax. I had an accountant. I did all that stuff, and that was really as a matter of necessity because I found myself. Um, underemployed um, in 94 when um, my family uh, moved from Port Chalmers to Littleton we, um, for, for personal reasons. We, we left, came further north, and then I was I, basically I had trouble getting a job because um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't appeal to employers. I have lots of skills, but none None of them really sing out to employers. Um, Got to give that guy a job. They're like, who the fuck is this guy? What is, what is the, he calls this a CV. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, Corpus American was a combination of, of factors, but, but it enabled me to continue to build those international connections that were the point of your original question. 
alongside uh, putting out the music of other people, of course, there's there's the the work that you're doing with the Dead Sea. Uh, how did those two things kind of balance out? And um, just sort of going back to the earlier the earlier days of of the Dead Sea, um, when you first started looking to put the band together, um, were you was the label running at the same time? Did the label come after? Uh, no, the band predated the label. Okay. So how did how did those two things kind of sit sit together? Because obviously, you know, as a band starts to get its uh, get some momentum going and interest starts to develop, it's uh, th- there can be some you get getting your head turned in two different directions. And you were saying you were working as well. Um, you you had a, a lot on your plate, I guess. So the dead started in January nineteen eighty seven. When I returned from that year I'd spent in the UK, um, and that was about six months before the Flying Nun office experience. So 87 was spent essentially getting the band up and running and, and working in the Flying Nun office. And then 88, I was back in Dunedin, I had a functioning kind of group um, and, and was starting the label. Um, um, yeah, and so the Dead Sea was always the least likely group to succeed. Um, we were always regarded as as a bit of an embarrassment um, locally. Our friends, kind of, e- e- even our even our nearest and dearest, for the first few months, it took a while for people to really get on board with what we were doing, um, because it was so um, profoundly opposed to the prevailing zeitgeist um but the whole flying nun thing was about was about the song it was about great pop songs you know and like we didn't have any songs and frankly we weren't really interested in them um and you know people were starting to get really professional and we were like fuck that we're not (laughs) no that's not professional we have an alternative definition of professional um and 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 so as we've developed we are incredibly professional in the sense that we're we're really proficient at what we do but if you measure us against um a proper band well we don't stack up it just doesn't make any sense what we're doing is wrong on all sorts of levels and and the products you know speak for themselves you've heard some of our records um so on lots of levels the whole process about the band was we were very determined we were not going to do what anybody expected we were always going to do what we wanted to do and we were very again like with expressway you know i've kind of given you the impression i had a real plan i really stuck to it i was very cut and dried about what i was doing well with the dead sea we were kind of similar in that we you know the three of us agreed what we didn't want to do and what we enjoyed doing and we just wanted to do that we just wanted to realize uh our ambitions in a way that would stick it to our critics who were many um i mean we eventually managed to win over most of the people whose opinions we really cared about but it was amazing how long it took some of them to actually kind of you know in some cases we actually had to with David Mitchell, who was one of the guitar players in the 3Ds, who's quite a crazy guy, and I really thought would get what we were doing. It wasn't until we actually sat him down with a beer in our in our practice room, and and we stood kind of in a kind of a triangle around him, and actually blasted him, got him inside the sound, and after that he was like, "Oh, now I understand what you're yeah. doing." You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> and he was sort of he flipped to being a you know an enthusiastic supporter because because you had to put aside a lot of preconceptions about what bands did and what they sounded like in order to actually understand what we were trying to do and i won't lie we weren't that good when we started it took us a long time you know probably i i reckon harsh 70s reality which which came out about four years into the band by then that was our first peak we were we were completely on track at that point doing something that really nobody else was doing um and the, but so paradoxically at about that point let's say by the end of the 80s the dead sea had become a kind of a secret weapon for expressway because people who got the dead sea it was the only thing that they really wanted to hear and so having that kind of you know ace up our sleeves if you like really helped drive the label and the interest that the dead sea got internationally which was a completely inverse proportion to the interest that it got in new zealand which is you know in new zealand we were regarded with horror and uh contempt and and incomprehension people thought we were a joke i mean that was the one thing we never were was a joke i mean we thought what we were doing we thought the reaction that we got was pretty funny but that wasn't the point of what we weren't doing it to amuse people <laughs> But luckily, we found it amusing that they were so horrified by what we did. Um, but anyway, yeah, so the Dead Sea and these other, I mean, the Dead Sea never actually released anything on Corpus Hermeticum. Um, and that was more about trying to keep the, the, if you like, the internal band democracy working. Um, because if, you know, if one person is making more money off what we do than the others, then becomes a bit of a problem and i needed to make money off what i was doing or there was no point in my doing it because i you know I, I didn't have a proper job for some time um so yeah the, the, but the dead sea was um it was a it, it turned into a great uh calling card if you like for what we were doing collectively and and subsequently has uh, you know by the early to mid 90s was beginning to actually inspire not exactly copycats but people to think they can do it i could do something like that it doesn't matter that what i want to do is so you know outre so kind of minority interest those guys have found a way to make that really niche stuff fly internationally and that inspired i think a lot of people think i could do that too and that is probably one of the better parts of our legacy really was who we've inspired uh and you know to some degree um to do stuff that they might not have felt they could do otherwise when you were talking sorry ben i just i just want before we go move move on to the next bit when you were talking about standing in a triangle around uh the guy from the, the 3ds i've forgotten his name sorry david what's his mitchell. name david, david mitchell. mitchell so and and he's you you said about placing him at the heart of the sound yeah. and then he, then he got it yeah. on the podcast we've talked to a few people about the moment where that happened for them for the first time with the music that they were playing with other people whether uh, uh, where they locked in mm. where the sounds they were making locked locked in together for the first time and listening to your music, I'm imagining, because I don't make 
sound in the way that you do and, and i don't uh, you know i'm m- more traditional and mm. i'm and i'm actually quite envious of what you do <laughs> i think it's amazing and but i'm i'm imagining that there's there you have that moment quite often where things lock where things align where what where there's a collective uh resonance if you like yeah. oh yeah and, and in, in fact going back to what i said earlier about um the 7th of november 1981 listening to the clean and having that epiphany that this was the best band in the world um our first rehearsal um was a similar experience where literally from the get-go i mean it wasn't what had happened was michael morley had said to me do you know do you want to start a band we were literally it was a sunny afternoon we were listening to trout mask replica by captain beefheart and having a couple of beers and i looked at him but hang on you know i can't play the guitar and he was like yeah no that's that that i yep that let's start a band. <laughs> robbie's really keen and robbie was his flatmate at that point and robbie was the drummer in the villains who of course were you know kind of flying on rock royalty they were they were recording albums that cost a hundred thousand dollars around that point and um or starting to and um i thought Okay, uh, this is insane. Um, let's let's. I, I was unemployed, <laughs> you know, just kind of scoping out what I was going to do. So I thought, oh, okay, this is stupid, but let's give it a lash. And so we got together in this um, large, quite cavernous. There's an old pharmaceutical warehouse that was operating as a kind of an alternative arts centre. It was an afternoon. We just set up our gear in the middle of this big empty room um <laughs> and just started playing and literally you know sort of half an hour later i was so excited that i just dropped my guitar and started to run like a kind of demented bumblebee round and around the inside of this warehouse sort of shrieking incoherently because because what we were doing was just you know was something that to me sounded like what i wanted bands to sound like but they never did um and it was, I mean, it was a fairly primitive template for what we've done subsequently, but the elements were there, you know, because Michael and I couldn't play together because I didn't know how to do that. He, he, he was a competent kind of garage band rhythm guitarist by that point. He'd sort of taught himself to play in the couple of years prior, um, and I hadn't. Um, and but and Robbie could play he could play anything um and of course the key to any good band is a good drummer but he also was quite happy to just kind of just he didn't because he was in the Valains it was always there's 13 bars in seven eight time and then you flip for six bars in seven five you know and he had to make all these changes and it, and it just didn't work if he didn't and actually, kind of unbeknown to me, he he didn't really love doing that. And it's turned out subsequently that wasn't his great strength as a as a rhythm machine. His great strength is he can just generate rhythms that just grow and progress. And they're like the sea; they die away, they come back. You know, there's the stuff that he does with us. He never had a chance to really do that. And and I think the other thing that appealed to him about working with us was it was very from the get-go it was very democratic there was no there was no one guy like graham downs and the blaine's songwriting genius 
Graham will turn up, I've got a song, and it goes like this. There's 13 bars of this, and then seven bars of this, and you will play it. No, not like that, you know. With us, it was like, just do what you fucking want, you know. And he loved that. And and that's been the foundation of what we've done subsequently, has always been that no one <coughs> person makes decisions. It's consensus. We all have to agree to do it. We all do what we want. Like in in the moment when we're performing, you know, there's none of this kind of, oh, you know, oh, I have to do this now. It's like, no, I do whatever I want uh, and they will do whatever they want. And we make that work. That's our, that's our shtick, if you like. I think, Bruce, you sort of described in the past that when you first started recording with Dead Sea that you might have some sort of semi-formed ideas to act as a kind of skeleton for songs yes. as, as a kind of starting point. But over the years, you just gradually abandoned that strategy completely and moved to complete improvisation. Yeah, that's a pretty bold move. How did that? How did that sort of freedom evolve amongst the three of you? In a completely um, unplanned and pra- practice-led way, you know, it was the result of playing together. It was what we we just we realised that. So by, say, by about the time we did Harsh 70s Reality in sort of 91, 92, we were starting to, in any given <coughs> public performance, we would always have a bit where we would just play whatever we wanted. Um, and then from that developed the habit of, we, we, have a, we had a song called Outside, which we recorded on um, the White House. And Outside was the recorded version is about 17 minutes long the song is about two and a half minutes max there actually was a song at the start but what we started doing with outside was that it would we do the song bit and then it would just fall apart and devolve and then coalesce and build into something and so we started doing this in shows and then after a while we realized well we don't need to start with the bit that's you know that we sort of half pie know how to play the outside but we can just and and i guess i don't know whether outside was called outside because it was one of the things that kind of trend if you like translated us outside of the song um but it did um and then yeah by about 93 we were regularly improvising you know probably initially i mean every song had every song was just a loose framework so we never really nailed them down so they always had an element of improvisation within them but probably by about 93 you know that balance was beginning to shift where most of what we were doing on one level or another was improvised and then then what really happened was in 95 we went to america and we did our first and to date most extensive american tour we did 11 dates in a fortnight we drove from Minneapolis to Boston in a van. We did all those things that people are meant to do. It was absolute fucking murder. It was a, on many. It was very exciting, but it was also physically a really dreadful experience. It was just I was really ill most of the time, and it wasn't happy. But what we really realised was, so we thought, okay, we're going to America. We've released all these records up to this point in America, and those people who bought all those records probably deserve to hear us try to play some of those songs. So we went to America and we did song-based sets, you know, night after night. And then at the end of it, we all looked at each other and basically said, "We never want to do that again." 
um, because we'd kind of, you know, we were, the, the songs were all at that point, you know, three to five years, or six, six, some of them were six or seven years old. And we weren't interested in playing them and, and we didn't need to play them. And we thought, okay, we've, we've fulfilled that bargain, if you like. We've, we've, we've gone to America, we've played all that shit. Now we're just going to not ever do it again. And we didn't, basically. So that was kind of the, that's when it really flipped. And after that, so the next record we made was the Repent, which is a live CD um, that I think the shows we did for Repent, probably there would have been like one song we would have done. I don't know, Helen said this or Power or one of those things. At, at some point in, the, in an hour long set, we'd find ourselves like Michael would suddenly start doing Power and I kind of wake up and go, oh, 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 okay, here we go. Um, but, but for the, for the CD, we cut all those bits out. It was only the stuff that was, you know, the most extreme, the most brutal, the most, uh, structureless, formless stuff. And we made an entire CD of that. And in a way it was like, that was, that was us clearing out the cobwebs and, you know, saying to our, um, audience, okay, this is what we're doing. What were the audience reactions like when you were, when you were first embarking on shows in that way? Well, the audience, to be honest, people, I still, you know, online, I'll still see people say when we do a new record, like, well, it's still not as great as that stuff that they did in the early nineties that I really like. And I'm like, well, you should really get a new thing. You know, <laughs> like Go and listen to something else. Don't persist in buying our records and be disappointed because we're never going to suddenly become the people we were in, you know, 1991. It's just, you know, you're fucking joking. No, we can't do that. So, yeah, I mean, but, but you know, I'm, I, but paradoxically during the, the current century, tastes have changed and even in New Zealand I you know I, I, I can't lie we have a certain uh, popularity or, or we have a certain position or there's a certain respect accorded to what we do and we can now find ourselves like we did a major festival two years ago in Auckland um, called Laneways um, it's sort of an Australasian franchise thing and they always have a New Zealand kind of heritage act you know the chills or whatever and for whatever reason they chose us they decided we're going to get those guys so we found ourselves you know on a sunny day at you know sort of three in the afternoon uh, in a sort of a band rotunda scenario in a park in Auckland playing to all these young people and I was genuinely a little bit concerned about how it was going to go but um the feedback subsequently, uh, no pun intended, was that um, that actually people were astonished. You know, people and and people now are able to actually hear the psychedelic impact of our sound and actually understand that's a thing. You know, that's actually a legitimate thing, and and we do it in a way that you know not many people can. Um, and yeah, people have developed a taste for it. It's quite surprising. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, and help, it helps because I don't want to be a heritage act. You know, I don't want to look at an audience of people who look like me because um, I've stood in those audiences at times and gone, oh, Jesus, this is a dull night out with all these fucking old people. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bruce, you've also de dedicated time to writing books about music. Um, 
Can you tell tell us a little bit more about um, about that, and and also about the sort of the other other creative ac- activities and what they sort of fulfil for you? Yeah, I mean, writing. I've always been a writer. Um, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that my, one of my first involvements in the music scene was was writing for fanzines. So I was, you know, I probably initially was, uh, if I had a reputation, it was as a critic. Um, and, and I've always kept that, you know, I've written for The Wire and whatnot um, more recently because um, I, I like to write. It's, you know, I, I like to talk as well, but, you know, writing is something I'm quite good at. And um, I'm a bit of a theory nut. You know, I, by, the, by the time, by the mid 80s, I already had two degrees in political philosophy. Um, so I had a framework of theory, if you like, which was very useful in navigating the music industry because I had a framework to essentially understand it, you know, a Marxist framework. It's it's not a lie about it. Um, but that I found that, you know, practically really helpful. So what I've explained to you about Expressway, <coughs> you've probably read between the lines and understood that I, I you know, I actually had, if you like, a, um, a worldview that um that guided my decision making um and and what i found interesting was it's it's an experimental process i proved to my satisfaction what what would accord with my worldview with my theoretical you know uh framework and what wouldn't and so subsequently um a lot of my writing has been you know kind of trying to tease out what i've learned from practice um and my doctorate which i uh completed in 2017 um which was in fine art there's a sound program at rmit which is the royal melbourne institute of technology university uh in melbourne so i did i did my doctorate there and it was a practice-based doctorate so i made a whole lot of work the reason i did it was well, I'm going to make all this work anyway. And I basically got given the chance to get a doctorate. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do the work, why don't I get the doctorate? You know, that could be useful. I'm working in an academic institution. Um, so so, the, so there's been, a, a for me, reflecting on practice and then writing about that has always been quite a major impetus. Um, and I'm interested in what I've learned about I'm interested in a number of things, obviously, uh, recorded sound um, and how that works and how people understand it, because the sound of records is something I'm, I'm really preoccupied with as much as the music. It's the, so I've started collecting early 60s 45s, like original 45s from particularly sort of the late 50s through to about 66 or thereabouts. and actually really getting into listening to the the way the sound is constructed the way they're mixed the way they're cut um and compare and it's really interesting if you compare uh, my boy lollipop by millie small i've got a original new zealand 1963 pre thing i've also got ireland reissued it in the about 1983 it might have been the 20th anniversary or something and and so they recut it, of course, in 1983 to make it sound like a proper record. And if you play those two singles, they're both 
seven inch 45s play them back to back it's like listening to two different records because like the harmonica break and the, the later version sounds like a bloke playing a harmonica in the 1963 version they've cut it so hot it sounds like somebody belt sanding the inside of your sinuses it's incredible. <laughs> Um, if you actually listen to the harmonica it's like it's so it jumps out and just starts smacking you in the face it's great and that's it's a completely different experience and so that's one of the things that i'm currently interested in and obviously the balance between composition and improvisation and 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 actually improvisation my whole doctorate was really about what does improvisation do to your brain What's the experience of improvisation? What does it give people? And what is its role in society? Because clearly I'm never going to get rich doing the shit that I do. Um, and I've, 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 I accepted that by, by about the mid nineties, we pretty much proven actually our ship was not going to come in. There was a great moment when guided by voices suddenly became huge. And that would have been about 95, 96. So these are guys who'd been losers for years and, and I didn't know them, but I knew people who knew them. So I kind of had some perspective on, on what was happening. And suddenly they were getting like Converse sneaker deals and, and just mad money. And like, it was just the whole thing just went ballistic. And we thought, is this going to suddenly become general or is this bubble going to burst? And the bubble burst. Um, so we never got the sneaker deal that I would have, quite dearly liked um because I, I really like converse sneakers i'm wearing a pair at the moment but um anyway uh, ironically when we played at that festival at laneways a couple of years ago the stage was sponsored by dr martin's so i did get a nice pair of uh of docks out of that that's the that, uh, i can declare that's the only uh in kind of product endorsement that i've received in my career um yeah. and the other two <laughs> <laughs> Michael and Robbie got shoes that didn't fit them. Somehow, but um, my ones are fine. Thanks very much. But the other two <laughs> away because they couldn't get their feet in them. <laughs> but anyway, um, that was a sorry that I went I went out on a bit of a limb there. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, the writing thing is is really central and and one of part you at the get go we were talking about my uh my current job one of the things that's annoying me about my current job is that although i'm working in an academic institution is it, it, it is as a manager and i don't actually have time for research and i want to write a book but i cannot get my head in the space to write the book for you know for sufficient time because i have this really demanding kind of manager role so i'm trying to kind of move sideways at this point because if i don't i'm 60 if i don't write this book now you know i could drop dead <clears throat> and not have actually done it and frankly i would feel that my work was incomplete so i mean at least one possibly possibly several books actually because i do i read a lot about uh contemporary you know culture the media um and and <coughs> and i just feel that there's some people are beginning to grasp important things and some people are still kind of ignoring them and i i want to make some points if you like because i'm i'm just like that really so what what would it be what do you really want people to grasp if you had to distill uh, it down I, I, I like them to reflect differently on on 
on improvisation because I think it's still really poorly understood. Um, you know, as part of my doctorate, I had to go and read what I could find about this being written about improvisation, and a lot of it was was very unhelpful um, and very vague and not very practical. Um, and I think that um, I'd like to, you know, try and improve the standard of discourse around that, to be honest. But I'd also like to improve the way people, because, okay, this is, this is the 21st century, and music listening now is done on stupid little devices with tiny little, you know, headphone things and um, speakers about the size of, you know, your little fingernail. Um, what the fuck's that about? You know, the technology that was developed by, let's say, the 70s was optimal for listening to music. You know, it was a much richer experience. And now that's been totally like purely because of the demands of capitalism, late capitalism. That's that's all been trashed. And I I really want to put a flag in the ground and say no. This is a big mistake. You people are missing out. You do not understand what's going on here. Um, it's it's not that I'm a Luddite, but I think if you just play these different media against each other, it rapidly becomes apparent what's missing. And it's starting to affect the kind of music people are making in a really big way. And I think anyone who, I mean, I don't listen. I, I've realized I don't listen to chart. I don't know what's in the charts. And when I hear it, I just... I, I want to scream and jump out of the car, basically. Um, so I'd, I'd like to do something to kind of point up why is this decay of a once great, um, you know, we can't recover the greatness of popular music in the 20th century, but I think we need to understand why it was great then and why it isn't now. Um, and I think a lot of the effort that went into making pop music great in the 20th century has probably moved into, in some cases, into more underground um, areas now. And that's a process, because I've watched a lot of my contemporaries make that move from kind of sensible music to to stupid music or sound or shit that's like, what the fuck is that? What the fuck? What? What? <laughs> what? Um, so, th so that's a cultural process that I feel deserves examination, um, and nobody else is doing it. That, that sounds like an amazing uh, ambition to have, and the, uh, you should write that book, Bruce. I I very much think I, I can't. Yeah, <laughs> I just sort out my God, living yeah. situation. <laughs> I think uh, the importance of the physical artifact, Bruce. So, as part of what you do. Do you still get a buzz um, from the moment you hold a new record that you've made in your hand and put it onto yes, your turntable? Yes, yes, it doesn't compare with the with the feeling of your first record. Um, that that was that was like having a you know, having your first child, you know, holding your first LP. But um, no, absolutely. I mean, we've recently, uh, as a group, self released a seven inch EP. Um, that we had pressed in Australia. It's not really been effectively distributed at the moment. It's kind of, we're sort of keeping it in our back pockets uh, as, you know, potential future merchandise. Um, it'll slip out a bit, but um, just getting a record like that, that, you know, we totally planned, totally made, totally done all the work for, 
and to have that it's still a great moment you know um just you know feel the quality um and it's great that it's still in some way possible to do that that gives me some hope um and actually yeah the set the seven inch ep is it was a big format here in the 80s the 12 inch ep was kind of the hero format for new zealand underground music but the, the un, beneath that there was a sub underground making um seven inch 33 eps that sometimes ran up to like 10 minutes a side which is you know fidelity wise not a great option but this one we've made is about seven seven and a half minutes a side and it sounds it sounds pretty good and um yeah just again it's an interesting experience and in listening to so if it's it's like an album but it's really small and it's you know and you turn it over after seven minutes like hmm, you know it's just it, it it's an interesting experiment and uh, it it's worth thinking about so yeah i absolutely do and i mean because it's cassettes are back that's hilarious i find that hysterical. <laughs> yeah we only made cassettes with the, ex the expressway period because we didn't have any choice we didn't have access to pressing plants it was and we didn't have a lot of you know capital to invest so cassettes were never my sort of first choice but the irony is that they turned out to be like hipster collectible kind of really wow okay so i'm i'm what i'm waiting for is the return of the cd just you mark my words cd is going to be back you can barely sell those yeah. things now but at a certain point the young people are going to go wow <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking forward to it i've still got some corpus americum cds in a box you know i'll i'll flog those things bruce thank you so much for for doing this um it's been a it's been a proper treat to, to speak with you thanks for taking time out of your day to to uh to, to be on the podcast my pleasure can we just finish off with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now we're going to finish with uh, a track called untitled by uh, bruce russell and thierry monnier um and uh so it's a guitar duet uh, in the traditional style. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, <laughs> yeah, thank thank you, you Bruce. Bruce. You're welcome.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 